Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Episode 9, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. So our topic for today's episode is about civility. And what does it look like today to be civil, but also disagree? Hmm, I wonder, I wonder where we're drawing hmm. our inferences from I wonder the, where we've I seen people might be. having some disagreements <laughs> lately. I don't know. Do you know what's important about this is, uh, you know, I, I, from my research, the primary way that people out there describe Jesus, if you just uh, stop somebody on the street and ask them, describe Jesus... Uh, usually the first thing they'll say is, Jesus is a nice guy. He's some version of nice. That's the public consciousness that we have of Jesus. So when we ask the question, was Jesus a civil person? Most people would say, of course he was. He's like the nicest guy that ever lived, except for like half of the stories of his encounters with people weren't nice at all, and he wasn't civil on any level for some of those people. So it brings into question, is civility a legit goal for us as followers of Jesus, or is the kind of communication that's happening in today's sort of political landscape and cultural landscape and social media landscape, is that kind of like what Jesus did? So we're going to explore this through the portal of stuff that's happening right now in our culture, and then we're going to look at all of this through the specific interactions Jesus had with different types of people. We're going to slow down and pay ridiculous attention to Jesus. We're going to wallow in the mud puddles with him until we start to get his heart. So that is what is on the docket today, and if you're a new listener, my name is Rick. I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life and general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, and I'm here with my co-host and good friend, the Becky Nader. Becky Nader, that's my new name. Actually, it should be Becky Nader, but that's <laughs> Becky Nader. It's harder to pronounce. So, hi. So there's Becky. So today um, we did our last episode uh, last week was called "How to Survive the 2016 Election," and oh my goodness, a lot of people listened to that um, because in, in a lot of the comments we had about that podcast were also people like basically saying, "I'm at my wits' end with this. Mm-hmm. I'm, my soul is worn out." from this whole process. So a lot of people listened to that. It had a great response. But there are some things that we noticed about that. It not only was very popular, but we got a lot of varied feedback from that. And so, Becky, you're, you're, you're the primary person who moderates that feedback and has to respond to all this. So I thought, let's start off with you talking a little bit about what kind of response and feedback we got from that and what you had to do about it. I had a little tension over this. <laughs> Um, and I've got to, I have to be honest with you, I, I manage a lot of Facebook pages and online communities, and shout out to the, to, to the people who follow Jesus Centered Life. You guys are just tremendous. I love you so much. You just have always been just a, a beacon of hope for me. Um, but last week, it was a little... Hairy. Um, it was a little hairy. You weren't in your normal state. Um, and there was just, there was some bullying. There was a little bit of, you know, hate throwing. There was a lot of anger and tension. Um, and you know, 
I felt a little bit of tension around this because there was there was definitely people who were just having positive civil discourse, and I was happy to see it. Um, but then there was people who were just being really mean and angry, and I don't normally censor, um, but I, I had to delete some comments. I had to delete them um, because they were just not a good representation of, of Jesus and what we are called for. So I felt a lot of tension about that. You know, this tension of how do we, I don't want to, I don't want this to be a place where we don't talk about hard things. That's not, that's not what it is. Um, but it also, it can't be um, a place where we sp- spread hatred. And just today, I want to just give you an example because you may not know what I mean by that. Um, but a friend of mine, Shannon Dingle, she posted <clears throat> an article. It got picked up by the Wall Street Journal. And today she wrote on her Facebook page, and this just really broke my heart. She said, so it's only been a few hours since my um, article was published by the Wall Street Journal. Um, And and in private messages, tweets, and emails, I've been called unattractive, um, that I hate babies. I probably work for Hillary. My husband is going to divorce me over this election. Um, I'm an evil liberal. I'm a Christian in name only. I'm the stupidest person. Um, I'm unforgiving. I'm a traitor to my race. Um, I'm going to regret my vote when I'm assaulted by a gang of Muslim refugees. I shouldn't have the right to vote. Um, And it goes on. It goes on. on I I, I didn't even, you know what, I'm going to be honest with you. I I skipped the really bad ones because I'm not going to say them on this podcast. So, um, yeah. I mean, it's an obvious example. It's even when you read this, everyone listening to this knows that the social media space, the digital space, has removed some of the cost of uh, hard interchanges, hard interpersonal mm-hmm. interchanges. I mean, uh, I work with students a lot, teenagers a lot, and oh, do they know this? I mean, th- this is such a rampant thing that kids actually obviously commit suicide sometimes mm-hmm. because of the way they're treated online. And when you get a cavalcade of abuse like that for any reason, um, it can, even though you, you can talk back to it and say, uh, they're just reacting, that's not true, that's not true about me, it still goes in. And so this is the space we live in now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's flamethrowing space in this culture. And I, and so, uh, but embedded in what you just said too, Becky, is even here on this podcast, we aim to be challenging, not for, not simply to be challenging, but because Jesus is a very challenging person. If you're paying attention to him, then you're going to be challenged by the things he says and his behavior. Um, so we we aim to be in that space. Uh, we don't want to shy away from hard things. In fact, we talked on one of our podcasts, I'm not sure which one, about the Stockdale Paradox, which is essentially a way of thriving and surviving in difficult circumstances, and it means um, you must face the brutal, rea- uh, brutal facts of your reality while simultaneously holding on to your prevailing hope. This is the very tension that Jesus lives in, and he calls us to live in this tension. We embrace brutal realities without laying down our prevailing hope. So we are all about embracing brutal realities, but are we about brutal brutal conduct? Or brutality. Or brutality in general, yeah. So, and, uh, so let me ask a question that seems self-evident, but... We're actually going to explore it. Was Jesus brutal? Uh, did Jesus behave brutally at times? So we're going to explore this, uh, and we're going to let Jesus teach us instead of us 
visit our expectations upon Him. We're going to let Him answer that question for us. So, but the real question then is, what does it mean to be civil in an atmosphere, in a space where you also want to be real and challenging, and you want to be intentional? So I want to throw out a premise before we get further into this, and the premise is that no matter how Jesus communicated with each person he met, um, and he communicated in a wide variety of ways with each person he met, no matter how he communicated it, um, his communication all came from the same place, a place of love. Even when he was at his most uh, in-your-face with uh, people that he was confronting, his confrontation was not Jesus losing his temper or going off, uh, just going off on people or um, losing control of himself. Uh, when we slow down and pay attention, what we realize is that his communication to them was really born out of his love for them, which is hard to fathom when you realize some of what he did. But we're going to sink into that and, and examine it um, more deeply. So we found some stuff we'd like to share with you about this tension happening right now in our culture of both wanting to disagree with people, but actually feeling anxious about that. And even if I heard on, the, on NPR this morning as I was driving in, I heard a story about uh, a woman who uh, is a uh, Trump supporter, I think, and she has a co-worker that she's actually the supervisor for who's a Clinton supporter, and uh, the boss unfriended the person that she's supervising because she doesn't want any more of this conversation happening. It's too tense, too, too much is on the line, it's too stressful. She just unfriended her. She doesn't want to have any more conversation about this tense stuff. So people are weary of this kind of conflict, disagreement stuff, and that there's no rules, apparently, to it. And so there, so what it's doing is, is creating a space where we can't disagree. We just become more encamped in our particular focus because we're not even talking about it. So, so you found some examples, Becky, of, of how this is being lived out in our culture. So let's talk about some of those. So August issue of Time Magazine, so this is, re- this is, this is relatively new. Um, it's called The Tyranny of the Mob. Trolls are turning the web into a cesspool of aggression and violence. What watching them is doing to the rest of us may be even more harmful. Um, and I, I wasn't really that familiar with trolls before reading this article. I'm a little bit freaked out now. Um, <laughs> I'm like going to go hide in my room or something, turning off all social media. I'm being attacked by trolls. Um, but basically, um, uh, Pew Research uh, found that 70% of uh, people who were 18 to 24 years old who used the Internet had experienced harassment, and 26% of women that age said that they had been stalked online. So let's stop there for a second. That's almost three quarters of millennials say that they have experienced <laughs> harassment online, and a quarter of all women say they've been stalked online. That's terrifying. That's uh, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, what do we mean when we talk about harassment? And I just I just shared some examples of what that looked like. But Anna, I'm going to just kind of briefly say these. But there were instances in 2011 where these trolls, so they're like an organized group that decide to, to really go after someone. Um, this is really sad. In 2011, trolls descended on Facebook memorial pages of recently deceased users to mock their deaths. Hmm. Um, in 2012, this woman who um, 
was trying to start a Kickstarter to raise awareness about misogyny in video games, received bomb threats at speaking events, rape threats, um, and then they created a video game called Beat Up, and her name was Anita I'm going to totally... Sarkeesian. Sarkeesian. Anita Sarke- Beat up in Anita Sarkeesian. Um, and then this year, Jonathan Wiseman, who is the deputy editor, deputy editor of the New York Times, quit Twitter, on which he had 35,000 followers after receiving a barrage of anti-Semitic messages. And then this other woman, Jessica, she left uh, social media after receiving a rape threat against her daughter, who was five years old. Wow. So, so these are anecdotal, and they're on any level, uh, in any culture, on any standard, these, these things are reprehensible. No matter how much you disagree with someone, uh, these acts of verbal and written brutality are, you know, J- Jesus is the one who said, uh, you've heard it said, don't murder anyone, but I say, if you harbor hatred for someone in yourself, you're as guilty as murder as if you had actually murdered them. He's changing the game. He's saying, this is what you think the norm is in your culture, and we, t- we had a whole podcast on the kingdom of God as, co- as compared to the kingdom of man, and, and how do you live more in the kingdom of God? So Jesus is saying, you know, in your home country, which is the kingdom of God, um, we treat harboring hatred for people inside the same way we would treat murder. I'm not kidding. No, we really do. We see it that way. So that's what Jesus is trying to get across. It's not just our exterior actions that matter, it's our interior life that matters. It's our heart. Yeah, and and so in another case, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he was criticizing them because they were so concerned with outside appearance. And he was trying to, again, reveal to them the truth about the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, um, whatever's in you is going to come out of you. You can't really, there's no wall built between your interior life and then how, it, how you treat other people. Eventually it comes spurting out. And so Jesus was trying to say, you really need to pay attention to what's going on inside the cup instead of outside the cup, because inside the cup is what really matters. Uh, whatever proceeds out of you is what really, really matters, not what goes into you. So Jesus is trying to set the standard for what we're accountable for, and that means that we're in ca- accountable for our interior life and what it is producing in an exterior way. So, of course, we'd like to think that um, people who are followers of Jesus never are trolls and no. never flamethrow. No. Yeah, but I've been editor of a Christian. Ma- yeah, I've been editor of a Christian magazine for almost thirty years, and. I've had some really hard things said to me about articles I've printed in the magazine in the past from people who are in ministry. So, and typically what happens when I call them, is I learned over time the best way to handle this, if somebody's really over the line, is I actually contact them so they can hear my voice. And I would say in about 98% of the time, what that person eventually says is, well, here's what's been going on in my life. It's been really hard, and I've been really angry and frustrated and disappointed about this, and I guess I just took it out on you. Mm-hmm. And I, I was, you know, in our company culture, we're, we're, we're told, just listen to their complaint. Just make sure they feel heard. I, I do, but then I added something to that. I would say at the end of those conversations, I get what you're saying, but you know what? It's not okay to vent at me. 
because you had something else going on in your life that was upsetting you. You need to know that I'm a real person and that those things have consequences. And I'm not an easy vent for you to just unleash on. So when you're in face-to-face communication, um, uh, a redemption can happen in the relationship. You can move back toward each other. And in all of those conversations, the person usually would apologize to me and own what they had done, which completes the circle of the relationship. Uh, Online and in digital space, we don't often complete the relationship. It's just one person fires something over the wall and the other person fires back over the wall, and we never have to be accountable to each other. Or you don't even have to look at what they responded back. You can just walk away, turn off Facebook, and, you know... Shut down. Like this woman I heard today, she's just trying to shut down. And eventually, that that is what's going to happen if this gets worse. People just cut this out of their life, which may be a positive thing in the short term. You have a couple other examples of stuff going on in the culture, too, here. So this one came um, to my attention about a year ago, but Campus Safe Spaces... Um, And if you want to know more about this, just go ahead and Google safe spaces and you'll get tons of articles that will come up. But college campuses are creating these safe spaces where you can go and and in that safe space, nobody can have any kind of controversial conversation. Um, And so there's so much anxiety over disagreement amongst the millennial and the Gen Z generation um, that they had to set up these safe spaces because they were they were feeling too anxious about disagreeing with people. And then I, I, I searched this yesterday and I was surprised to find that now they're creating safe spaces for people who are black, safe spaces for people who are Jews, safe spaces, no Jews allowed. And so almost like segregation, but because we feel anxious about being around people who we might disagree with. Yeah. And these are, uh, you know, especially from millennials on down in our culture, they've been raised in a cultural and home atmosphere where um, the, the greeting, be safe, or the, or when people are parting ways and they say, be safe, that was ubiquitous in our culture, and it's also uh, uh, just the tip of the iceberg for something that's been huge in our culture for about, oh, 15 or 20 years, where this idea that our highest form of uh, parenting love is to keep our kids safe, give them safe spaces, be safe out there, make safe choices, make good choices. This this all sounds good, but actually uh, Jesus never said to his disciples, go out there and be safe. It was actually the opposite. Go out there and be dangerous. Go do dangerous things for me. And uh, when I'm with uh, parents, I do a parenting uh, seminar called Fighting the Entitlement Dragon, and we explore together some of the foundations of entitlement. This is a super popular workshop, by the way, because parents are so uh, at their wits' end with their kids who feel so entitled. What we discover along the way is that it's actually the environment we parents set that is conducive for growing entitled kids. And one of those things is creating an environment where we say the highest thing in life is your physical safety. And so I ask parents, um, just as a fun thing, let's, let's list all of the people that come to mind that you have great respect for because they have done something good in the world to change the world for the better. So we list, and Mother Teresa always shows up on there, and um, all, you know, p- people that you would think of that pop into your head show up on this list. So we get a long list of, of people who've changed the culture, and then I ask them, 
How many of these people do you think have lived their lives by the motto, be safe? Well, there's this kind of funny, uncomfortable silence, and then it dawns on everybody, well, nobody did. If you're going to change the world for the better, you can't live by this uh, high principle of being safe. Um, and it's, it's simply not in the gospel either. It, Jesus is not urging us to be more safe. He's urging us to be faithful and obedient and brave and courageous and all these other things. So, so this campus safe spaces thing is really one result of kids who've grown up um, believing that um, every form of safety is very important, and now they're in a very unsafe environment digitally and on the social media, so uh, we're reduced to creating safe spaces so that any kind of conversation can happen. So all of this leads us into, is an on-ramp into, well, how, how did Jesus, how, how did he carry himself with various people in his interactions? And he carried himself in vastly different ways. I want to throw out to you, just to, before we dive into these stories, that for some people, he was unbelievably tender. In fact, he was so tender and kind that, that what he did was shocking to people around him. He treated people with shocking generosity. For another group of people, particularly people who uh, were trying to um, trap him or leverage him somehow, they had an underlying purpose that they weren't admitting, so they said one thing, but they were really after something else. His response to them was what I would call shrewd. Shrewd means—actually, uh, Jesus told a parable called the parable of the shrewd manager, where the, the character in his parable was noxious in every way except for one characteristic. He was quite shrewd. And Jesus told this story of a character who was very reprehensible except for this one thing to highlight that one thing and say, you people who, who are children of God, who follow me, aren't very good at this and I am, so I want you to learn how to grow in maturity in shrewdness. And shrewdness simply means um, learning how to study the, the forces at work in your relational situation and apply leverage to bring about the outcome that you want. And in Jesus' case, it's always a redemptive outcome. So when people were trying to trip him up or trap him, Jesus paused and considered the shrewd response to them, always with the intent of never coming back at these people in a frontal way, always coming from the side. So that was a second kind of interaction he had. And then he had, in general, a third kind of interaction where he was, wow, really in the face explosive. of people. Explosive. Yeah. And he said explosive things. You could even say he said some brutal things to people in a third kind of interaction. So let's explore those three different kinds um, through... Um, stories that represent those three different ways. So, um, so let's start off with the, the, that first kind of shocking generosity response. So one example of that is from Luke 7, where the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume shows up at a party that she's not supposed to be at um, because she's not on the invite list and never would be um, based on her reputation in town. And she moves through the crowd, comes to Jesus, and uh, pours the perfume on his feet, washes his feet, washes his feet with her tears, and dries them with her hair. Um, and 
and she is an offensive person to everybody at the party, and and the the these religious leaders and and muckety mucks um, are all just shocked that Jesus isn't kicking her out. Maybe he doesn't know who she is. They think, and Jesus instead turns to to the host of the party and says, "You know what she's done? She's washed my feet, and nobody did that but her. Here, you didn't even do that. She has honored me in an extraordinary way." Um, and then he tells a little mini parable about two debtors, one who owed a lot and one who owed a little, and he asked the, the, the host of the party, which one do you think was more grateful after their debt was forgiven? And he said, well, the one who owed a lot more. And Jesus was like pointing at her, see what I mean here? Look how grateful she is, because she's aware of how much of her debt has been forgiven. So he's remarkably tender, gracious, um, he, he, he's extraordinarily kind to this woman in a place where that extraordinary kindness is offensive to those around him. So that's, that's one example of Jesus responding to somebody tenderly. And I have a friend named Carl Medeiros, who's uh, heads up the Simply Jesus Gathering, who um, I had written something about uh, the third thing we're going to talk about, the interactions Jesus had where he was almost brutal. And Carl said to me once, yeah, Rick, you've got to remember always to consider who Jesus is engaging whenever he's engaging them, because he's not a, he's not, he doesn't have one gear. And uh, I, I thought that was a great reminder from Carl. So maybe we could talk just for a second about um, in what circumstances have we been in life where we have felt the tenderness of Jesus, mm. where we have felt his shocking generosity to us, where we have felt a kindness from him that we don't experience from anyone else. Does anything pop into your head, Becky, about a time when you experienced that? Well, when I first came to know the Lord, and I was 21 years old, and my life was, I think we've talked about this, not squeaky clean. There was lots of messy things there. <clears throat> I will never forget the first time someone shared the good news with me. I was working in a restaurant. Um, th this person was the bartender there. And this person really intentionally pushed into my life and shared the gospel with me in a way that I had never been shared with me before. And I remember driving home one night and just the Lord just coming down on me. And I was just weeping and crying and I didn't deserve, I did not deserve his tenderness. I did not deserve for him to come and find me in that way. And I will never forget that moment. Um, and I, you know, I completely gave my life to the Lord at that point. But in a time when someone probably should have sat me down and had a stern conversation with, where is your life going, Becky? That's not how he dealt with me at all. Um, mm. He was very gentle and tender and kind with me. Mm. And I think that my parents probably wanted to sit me down and have a conversation with me, <laughs> a different kind of conversation with me about where my life was at that point. Mm. You know, I can think of times when, uh, especially in my marriage, when I have been mm -hmm. a destructive person in our marriage, where I've said something that was hurtful, or I did something that was hurtful, and then I was confronted with it, and I had to own it, and uh, often what we do when we, when we are on the path to owning it is we first resist it, we're defensive, we don't really want to own it, but for me, I've mentioned before that I go down to our basement, where there's, it's an unfinished basement, has an old ratty couch down there, and I sit there and I just cry in these moments where I'm having to own 
my own sin or my own brokenness and how it gets expressed in the people around me. So I sit there and cry, and in every case, as I engage Jesus in those moments, he's incredibly tender with me, because he recognizes the truth. I am owning my stuff right now, and what I most need is his reassurance that he loves me, because I'm just a broken person. So in the, in the midst of my tears, um, his voice is always so gentle to me. It's almost, it, 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 it shocks me, because what I'm ready to hear is how bad I am at that moment, and what he wants to communicate is, I get that, Rick, but don't forget this. So his voice is always tender to me when I'm in those places, and you can see that same thing being lived out in this story about this woman showing up at the party. He's saying, she's already owning her stuff. Of course I'm tender with her. She's in the midst of owning her own stuff and moving towards me. But there's a different kind of interaction he has. Um, One really great example is the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law are kind of set, trying to set Jesus up. They're always looking to try to trap him. So their whole intention is to construct a scenario by which they think he has no good option, and they are going to get him. Either the people are going to hate him, or he's going to break some religious law that they'll be able to catch him on. So they try to set up a scenario that they think is ironclad. There's no way he can get out of this. So they somehow set up this scenario where they are able to catch a woman in the act of adultery. So they were involved somehow in knowing when that was going to happen. (laughs) Some planning. Yeah, some planning went into that. They drag her out. It's clear that the law says if a woman's caught in adultery, she should be stoned. Um, They drag her in front of Jesus, and they say, what should happen to her, Jesus? So um, is he going to be nice Jesus, tender Jesus, law Jesus? What, what is the Jesus he's going to be? So uh, what Jesus does first is he stops, and he draws in the ground, and nobody knows what he's drawing. Um, I, I think it's entirely possible that he's just doodling while he has a conversation with his father, because he's about to go all shrewd on these religious leaders. He's about to come from the side instead of the front, instead of a frontal engagement. And so to do that, you have to pause and get guidance for it. So um, then he says, famously, um, all right, uh, go ahead and stone her, but um, you who is without sin, throw the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stones and go away. And then Jesus looks at her and says, hey, there's nobody here anymore. I guess you're not under conviction go and sin no more. Um, so that is an example of Jesus behaving shrewdly, uh, a type of person that he comes sideways at, that takes a little more thought and preparation as you respond to them, but Jesus did it all the time, and he told the parable of the shrewd manager expressly so that we would grow in this ability. So there are some people that you know when you're engaging them that they have something else going on. They have another kind of agenda and it's incumbent on us to respond to them not frontally, but to respond to them from the side with leverage enough that it brings about a redemptive outcome. Is there anything that, again, let's do this again, can you think of any time when you felt called upon to be shrewd, and what results what results came from that? The, the thing that I was thinking about as you were saying that is on social media. I, I really believe that social media 
can be a powerful tool um, for communication and connection with people. I also think it can be a dangerous tool. Um, and part of that is that you have to use discernment when you're on there. And so when I'm engaging with someone and maybe we're, we're engaging on something that we don't agree on, um, I can, I, I, I can tell if someone is really not open to hearing any ideas other than the one they've already come to the conclusion with. And what I've experienced with those people is that there's no point in having that conversation. Just that's not, they're not, they're not there to have an open dialogue. They're there to, to tell you what you should believe. And it's not really going to end it. It's not going to end anywhere. So I like to use your thoughts are welcome. Your doubts are welcome. And thank you for sharing yours with me, um, with those people and just sort of diffuse the situation. But I also think that there's times when I notice, you know, this person seems to be searching for something. And I have a lot of spiritual conversations online. Rick knows this because I constantly am sharing <laughs> stories about them, but I have a lot of spiritual con conversations online. And I think you have to be shrewd enough to know which people are really open for that kind of dialogue. Um, so that you don't end up in a situation where, you know, you're fighting with someone on Facebook, which is never fun. Yeah. And I, I, I think about a time, um, where I was learning to be shrewd and there was a person in my life who I knew had another agenda going on, but that agenda only I knew about the way he represented um, uh, his his input and direction to the larger group that we were part of was completely different than the agenda I knew he was after, and I knew that he was intending to be destructive in this relational environment, and so I had to think through what does shrewd mean right now. A frontal approach is not going to work. It doesn't make any difference to him if I confront him. He he just outmaneuvers me every time. So I decided, I asked Jesus, what do I do, shrewd-wise? What kind of leverage? It, examining the, if I study um, the situation to understand how things work in this relational situation, what's the shrewd thing I can do? So the idea that came to me during this time, and then I experimented with it, was the next time the group was together, I would find a way to simply state this person's hidden agenda in a way that was just natural, as if we, we talk about it all the time, and state it in front of the group um, as a point of conversation. So I waited for the moment. I said, Jesus, I'll do it. You give me the moment, the opening, and I'll try to jump through it. And the moment came. I saw it. I knew it was the moment to, to say it. So I said it in a very natural way. Well, this guy just turned beet red. He was flustered. He didn't know what to say. Everyone else was like, you know, they heard it, but they weren't, like, offended or knocked off their chairs or anything because of the way I said it, but that it had the impact of exposing what was in the darkness in the light, and it changed everything wow. about this interaction. So I then every day said, okay, Jesus, wh what's next? What do I need to do next? So it was very intentional. Um, we don't always have to haul this out. Jesus wasn't always facing people who had another agenda. that it, He just sometimes did. And then he had to be thoughtful about how he responded sideways with them to upend whatever it was, whatever agenda they had going on. One thing that was for sure is that it was never frontal. It always came from the side. So that's a different kind of approach. So when Rick talks about hearing from Jesus, we get this question a lot because this yeah. is something we talk about a lot on this podcast. So episode six, 
Um, we, we talk about hearing, how do you hear the voice of God? If what he just said sounds like, wait, I don't know how to do that. Go back to, to episode six and listen to that one. That's good. So let's do, do the last version uh, real quick here of his interaction that maybe the, the thing that most does not merge into the Jesus is nice category when he, whenever he was talking with somebody who was a religious leader who was hypocritical, or even at times his disciples, who were pretty thick-headed, he could be pretty hard in how he interacted with them. For instance, in Luke 11, he calls the religious leaders, he, sa- he says, they're like hidden graves in a field. Or just take a look at Matthew 23. <laughs> it is a cavalcade of brutal talk <laughs> uh, directed at these hypocritical religious leaders, people who had set themselves up as shepherds, um, uh, people who are to care for the sheep, um, he reserved his strongest language for these people who were intending to destroy instead of take care of the sheep. So there's a reason for the hardness of his language, but he called them snakes and sons of vipers and hypocrites and blind guides and whitewashed tombs. I often tell people, think of the, the hardest thing you can say to somebody, even some of the things you just read off, Becky. So the effect of those things is shocking. Mm-hmm. Well, the effect of these words that Jesus called the religious leaders was shocking. They were hard, hard things he was saying. Well, in one of these instances, he was sitting in the home of yes, one of the people. That's one of my favorite parts. <laughs> mine too. You know, when you think about these harsh <laughs> things, because I, you know, I, I was rereading through all of this yesterday, and you think, oh, he was standing in some like street corner and just there was a crowd and he was sort of spi- spitting it out to the crowd, but towards these people. So it wasn't like super confrontational. Like, no, he was having dinner in this person's home yes. when he said these things. I love that story. And, and, and here, here's where I think um, we can make sense of some of this. So we th- uh, intrinsically think that Jesus's, one of Jesus' highest goals is empathy, that that's his end game to relate by sinking into our own story and relating to us on a d- deeply compassionate level. But that, uh, that's actually not the goal of Jesus. His goal is transformation. His goal is redemption. This thing about us being fallen and broken people um, who are going to die unless we are grafted into a a living vine and have new life flowing through us, this is no joke. This is, he knows, this is fundamentally true about us, and our only hope is transformation. So when he is interacting with people who have uh, created a truth that is actually a lie— um, that cannot be broken through with empathy. Empathizing with somebody who's in that place, as these religious leaders were, will do nothing to crack them open and, and provide an opportunity for them to repent and move out of their hypocrisy into the light. So I think Jesus hauls a sledgehammer out because what's his end goal? Redemption of the person in front of him. He's giving every person he meets the best possible chance to invite the life, uh, the, the life of God into them. He's, he's always inviting, even when he is lambasting, because sometimes this thick uh, outer shell that hypocritical people wear is a, is a closed system, and there's no way of penetrating that closed system, so Jesus uses his sledgehammer. And in when he uses his sledgehammer, that person then has to engage him at an emotional level 
and he might get an opening that he can go through in the, in the context of that. So um, we know that some of these religious leaders who heard Jesus say some of these things, like Nicodemus, weren't afraid to approach Jesus because they were intrigued by his exposure of this hypocrisy. So Jesus, no matter what he's doing, is doing it out of a, a ultimate sense of love, and the highest form of love is the transformation of a broken thing into a whole thing. That's what he's after. So let's take that back to my friend Shannon. Yeah. So she writes an article about her her her, her opinion on on how all life matters, and then she's lambasted. I mean, I mean, she's just yeah. completely uh, um, by Christians. Yep. Um, who are are doing this in the name of Jesus because they believe that what they're doing is going to bring her redemption. Yeah. But she is not. She is not caught up in hypocrisy. Your preface to this was, this was her genuine, um, uh, heartfelt opinion. This is not a person encased in a closed system of hypocrisy. So, and even if she was simply um, uh, uh, threatening her with physical harm or something else, that's not breaking through somebody's encasement. Um, what Jesus did was reflect back. Jesus is always reflecting back the truth to people that he meets. In the case of the broken, he's reflecting back that he understands and sees their brokenness. In the case of those who are caught up in self-righteousness and hypocrisy, he's reflecting that back, because the truth can penetrate. So the, the litany of abuse that your friend got had very little connection to the truth. If somebody had said a hard thing to her, that was true, that was exposing of something she said that was hypocritical or whatever else, then I think that's a legitimate form of communication, and then it's up to your friend to receive it that way. Unfortunately, the medium of social media does not allow for much of that nuance. The way this is best communicated is face-to-face. Jesus didn't write letters to people when he was lambasting the Pharisees. He did it face-to-face. In their homes. Right in there, even in their homes. While they were cooking him dinner. <laughs> That's so funny. So, so let's wrap this up by talking a little bit at the end here about, so what does this mean? How do, how do we live in this tension between living in reality, in the brutal reality, but living with a, a sense of, do we want to say civility? Let's just say the higher calling is to live in love. Civility is a low version of love. We want to react and interact with people in love. So I think um, the only way to do that is to slow down and pay attention to what's going on in our own heart when we are engaging and responding to people. So I was recently uh, leading our national conference, and right before I was about to do something that was really challenging to me at the event, where I was going to lead something very challenging, somebody said something to me. I mean, we're about to go on camera to do this thing. Somebody said something to me that was really shaming and it, boy, it was like an arrow that won't thunk into my heart. And my first reaction was uh, something like, I'm never inviting you to this again. <laughs> um, and how dare you? And uh, how could you bring that up right before I'm about to do something really vulnerable? And, and, and. And so uh, I, I soldiered through this whole deal. Um, we, uh, it went off well, but then afterwards I retreated back to my hotel room and my friend, Tom Melton, who's been a mentor to me for a long time, 
um, happened to show up at that time just to hang out with me for a little bit. And I told him what had just happened. And the first thing I said to him was, you know, Tom, it's just typical. We have an enemy. I'm about to do something for the kingdom of God. He throws the kitchen sink at me with this comment. And Tom said, wait, slow down, Rick. Uh, Don't go too quickly to something outside of yourself. Pay attention to what's happening inside yourself right now. You can't control this guy that said this, but you can pay attention to what's happening in you right now. Why is this leveraging you? Of course, it's, it makes perfect sense why it would, but ask the question of yourself. What is it accessing? Why, what motions is it bringing up in you? And it was the perfect thing to say to me. I think it was a prophetic thing. Don't look outside yourself. Look inside yourself first and try to understand what's at work in your reaction. Slow down, wallow a little bit, pay attention to your own heart, and then after you've taken that breather and admitted what's going on in your own heart, then respond. Um, that's, that gap is what's not happening in our culture right now. People just pull the trigger. So it, it's an issue of slowing down, paying attention to your own heart, then responding out of that. So when I say that, Becky, what, what, what do you think of? Uh, the first thing <clears throat> is I, um, I think we need to examine our hearts while we're talking to people online and mm. what, what are you trying to accomplish? Um, what, what's in your heart that you want to, to lovingly convey to the person that you're talking to and, um, and r- pay attention to that. Um, you might hear you're not ready to have this conversation. Mm. And you might hear that love in this situation means I must say a hard thing. Yep. Or love in this situation means I must respond shrewdly. Or love in this situation means shocking generosity. Jesus was not a for- did not follow formulas, and his guidance in our life will not be a formula. That's why we need this connection with him to understand first what's going on in our own heart, then to ask for guidance and how we respond, then respond. Once you start doing this, it becomes more like breathing. It's not a long process. Once you, ha- you value this connection and slowing down to pay attention. Now, I'm not saying that I do this all the time, by the way. My wife would attest that I often get caught up in my own stuff, reacting out of my own stuff, and she'll have to mirror back to me the same thing I've mirrored back to her sometimes, which is, hey, Rick, what's going on? Why are you reacting this way? And if I'm humble enough to hear that and, and consider, here's what's happening. Often it takes me a while. We'll go on another walk, and I'll say, I've really thought about it. I think this is what's going on in me right now. As soon as that happens, it's like it takes the fuel rod out of your reaction. Then you can respond from a place of wisdom and love instead of a place where you're enslaved to your reaction. So... Um, our encouragement to you this week is to slow down and wallow for in moments where you start to feel a reaction rising up in you. First, understand what's going on inside you, then ask for guidance for your response, and then live out that response. And I love what Becky just said. The filter here, the, our baseline is always love, just as it was for Jesus. So, thanks for listening, everybody. Remember that you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today and in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com page. It's in the podcast section, and this is episode nine. 
Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcasts. Becky and I will talk to you next time. Bye.